1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpare, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased today to welcome Elizabeth Carpenter-Song, who is the author of Families on the Edge, Experiences of Homelessness and Care in Rural New England, new from MIT Press. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here.
2: Uh, so before we home in specifically on the book, I wonder if you might tell listeners just a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this particular project.
0: Certainly. So I'm trained as a medical anthropologist. And so what that means is is that my research involves working closely with people in their communities to understand their everyday lived experiences. Um, In more practical terms, that means that I have the enormous privilege of spending time with people in the settings of their lives to learn about what's important to them, and also their experiences of illness and suffering and how they navigate through complex systems of care. And so that's really characterized the work throughout my career And in this particular work, which is now stretching for more than a decade, I've turned that focus to really uh, look closely at the experiences of homelessness and housing uh, insecurity within rural communities within the U.S. Um, A lot of my scholarship has documented what I tend to think of as the missed opportunities within medicine. And so what we might think of as the rifts or the disconnects and certainly the harms, often unintended that happen within the space of healthcare and social services. Um, We certainly know that um, health and social services aren't working so well uh, for many people within the U.S. And this is especially so for communities of color, uh, low-income communities, and also for rural populations within the U.S. Um, At the same time, I would say that these systems are often not working what, particularly well for the professionals within them. And we see this, for example, in the high rates of burnout and also the ways in which providers are often demoralized within these systems. And so my work and this particular book uh, really strives, I think, to try to reimagine Uh, practices and also the cultures of health and social services to ask the question, how can we do better? Um, How can we come together to think creatively about designing and redesigning our systems of care um, to address many of the urgent needs that we face? And also uh, this work has brought me also to think not only at a practice level, but also to think about changes that need to occur through policy uh, to begin uh, to address the enormous task of seriously mitigating social determinants of health as well.
2: Yeah. So as you, as you mentioned, this work was 10 years in the making. You are, you uh, conducted 320 total visits with five families uh, in and around mostly rural Vermont. Um, and you, uh, Tell me if, if I'm getting this right, but the thing that they they had in common um, was uh, their uh, interaction with a facility called the Safe Harbor Shelter. So I wonder if you might start us off by telling us a little bit. Um, about uh, the range of families that you spent time with and and what we can learn about what it is that brought them into the shelter in the first place. And then we'll move on from there and maybe talk a little bit in more detail about what that experience of living in the shelter was like and and for those who uh, left it, how how and why they did that and, and how their lives changed. So um, how did folks find their way into the shelter? What happened?
0: Sure. So there are many different pathways into into homelessness and what brings families into a space like Safe Harbor. And so for the families with whom I had the opportunity to work closely, in some cases, this might be a breakup or a divorce. Um, For others, it could be experiences of domestic violence. Uh, For other families, it was living in a dilapidated structure that uh, was exposing their children to lead within the pipes and they needed to move. For others, it was merely the inability to afford rents within our region. And so as we think about these different kind of precipitating factors into homelessness, um, as I've spoken with uh, others within this space, the experiences of families uh, with whom I worked are broadly, um, they they resonate with with the experiences of of those who who find themselves homeless uh, more broadly within our communities. And so we can see um, the ways in which these different these different conditions, and certainly um, changes, you know, the loss of a job or changes in one's relationships over time um, may render one vulnerable to, to becoming homeless. Um, within this too, I think it's important to note that, um, and, and another scholar of rural homelessness, Yvonne vissing has noted that homelessness is is a spiral, and so it's the the idea that um, there may not be uh, one particular event, but it's kind of the accretion of vulnerabilities over time as well that may land someone with no no place to go.
2: Yeah, and is is do you think it's fair to say that that because of the the lack of available affordable housing in the area uh, it takes those vulnerabilities and makes it just that that much harder to 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 come out the other end of them right is that is that is it is it overstating things to say that at heart this really is when all is said and done uh, a problem of access to uh, uh, available and affordable
0: housing. That's exactly right. And I think that that's something that has been underappreciated in terms of thinking about housing within rural communities. Um, we see that the bulk of research on homelessness has been conducted in urban areas of the U.S., much less attention within rural communities. I think there's often been an assumption that these types of uh, forms of precarity are not so present in rural areas, and uh, this work really seeks to disrupt that. But certainly, within northern New England, we have the confluence of several factors. So um, we have actually quite high costs of living within the region, and then we have a very limited amount of housing inventory. And so what that what that does then is puts enormous pressure within the housing market. And we um, we simply do not have uh, enough stock of affordable housing within the within the region.
2: Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit, if you would, about about the shelter itself. What's life in the shelter like? What, what is what is that experience for people?
0: Certainly. So, so the, the shelter that I term safe harbor um, is very, you know, it's very unique in, in many respects, um, unlike other uh, shelter or even other social service settings that, that I've been um, uh, immersed in over the years and, and aware of over the years. Uh, safe harbor was not a particularly institutional uh, type of culture. Um, Instead, this was marked by uh, people's day-to-day experiences um, were were marked by a a lot of flexibility. And so people could come and go as they liked. Families, uh, Eight families could be housed in safe harbor at any given time. Uh, Families were provided with uh, two rooms. And so one, one room for parents, another room for their children to Sleep in. There were common areas that were shared by uh, the families within uh, within the shelter, and families would typically stay uh, for months at a time. And so this was reflective of, again, the lack of affordable housing. And so despite daily efforts to try to find uh, housing in the community, it took a very, very long time for people to find housing um, within our community. And so families um, were able to have a stable setting in which to live. They could uh, they could work on various aspects of both finding housing, um, but were able to work in this context. This particular shelter also provided many resources in terms of uh, children's services, and so an after school program where kids could come complete their homework, hang out for a bit. And so really the overall ethos of Safe Harbor was incredibly supportive, while at the same time, I also document how it, it uh, reproduced some aspects that um, were highly individual um, and reflect a certain New England individualism that I talk a great deal about in the book as well, that it may be useful to raise some questions about as well.
2: Um, say, say a little bit more about that, if you will, because it's, it's well, you point to the ways in which the shelter, maybe because of its size, but was perhaps a little more, what, intimate and supportive than we might think of sort of the, the shelters. I'm here in New York City, right? Big city shelters here in San Francisco or in L.A. Um, but uh, one of the, the the constant refrains that you will hear from uh, unsheltered folks who find themselves in shelters is the surveillance, the control, the feeling that even among the social service professionals, there can be a tendency to hold individuals rec- uh, uh, accountable and responsible for their own state. So, tell us a little bit more about the extent to which you you find that that resonates in in this rural shelter.
0: So, I think that it does resonate. You know, I think that as you said, it's really important to underscore that the overall ethos was one of um, of deep support. Um, guests, as families were called within this shelter were were really known as as people as individuals given the length of stay and and so there was a a great deal of support offered to them within that context but at the same time um and and staff members within this setting would uh would still speak about um things being up to the individual or an emphasis on personal choice um within this context i also found that um all housing searches, for example, were done by individual families. And so, you know, within as an anthropologist, I think a lot about kind of the ways in which we have uh, cultural assumptions of one family, one house. And so that was certainly uh, the case within the setting. And I think many, um, if not most shelter settings within the US. And so I raised some questions around, well, what if we were to rethink that and, and to think about possibilities for more kind of collective action or the pooling of resources, for example, and things like that, that might actually begin to move the needle um, to to increase our our capacity um, for housing within the region absent um, large-scale efforts to to develop adequate inventory. Um, But your point also around surveillance is something that is certainly a part of the story that I tell within the book as well. And so this is something that... um, even very well-intentioned systems of care can often um, still present um uh, the, the idea that that families are under the watch of others, whether that is under the watch of other families in similar circumstances, and especially under the watch of, of staff members and other health and social service providers within the community. And so um, Donna Friedman has talked about this in relation to families experiencing homelessness as parenting in public. And I think that's a really, really useful concept and one that, I borrow and apply within the book. And it's the idea that the kind of taken-for-granted privacy that middle-class families have in relation to family and domestic life is really upended in these types of more public settings. And so The most intimate tasks of caregiving or cooking a meal all become kind of subject to a certain um, gaze um, and, and subject then to potential judgment. And for some of the families with whom I've worked, unfortunately, this goes even further. And so systems of care can really become an apparatus of surveillance and harm. And so we see that particularly for families who are impacted by mental illness, who may be experiencing uh, substance use uh, compounded by housing insecurity, they um, have continued threats then or suspicions of not being viewed as fit parents. And so there are continued questions around that. And in fact, two of the families with whom I worked closely lost custody of their children during the course of the research Had their parental rights terminated? And again, my work uh, strives to ask the question of how could those types of tragic outcomes have been avoided?
2: Yeah, And this taps into, as you you reference in the book, the work that Dorothy Roberts and others have done uh, in what she terms the family policing system, the ways in which those state apparatuses are much more present in the lives of of poor, low-income, and unsheltered people.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
2: Um, so, uh, as we pointed out you spent, uh, uh, 10 years, uh, getting to know these folks, but the average stay in the shelter was six to nine months. So let's talk about what's going on when they are not in the shelter. What, how, how are the varied kind of circumstances that make it possible for people to leave? And, and what should we know about, um, you you write of the the oscillating rhythms of stability and instability in folks lives after that and and i'm wondering maybe if abigail's story might might be a good thing to share with people just for them to get the sense of 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 the idea that moving from the shelter does not mean that everything is spectacular suddenly right
0: Absolutely. And so I think this is one of the things that um, is, is unique about this particular work is the longitudinal aspect of it. And so most research on homelessness focuses on shorter periods of time when people are living in shelter, maybe living on the street. And so this work is different in terms of being positioned um, and following families, uh, both when they are unhoused and living in shelter, as well as uh, when they're living in homes in the community. And so th- I think that this then positions us to have some new insights into what contributes to continued housing vulnerability and also the conditions that facilitate greater security over time. And it's interesting because the work um, wasn't originally designed to be longitudinal um, and after I had been with families for a year, it really, a question came up, especially as families were transitioning into the community of, was I still studying homelessness if I continued this work? And I felt, you know, just a, a sense of wanting to know how families' experiences continued to unfold. And as I look back now, I also see that had I stopped the work Um, after a year as originally designed and intended, I'd have a fundamentally different understanding of of rural homelessness, particularly for families. Um, This would have been, I think, a story of how supportive and quite compassionate and humane social services enabled successful transitions into the community. Um, but as you know, the story is a lot more complicated than that. And families continued to face enduring threats to their housing security. And so we can see in the story of, of a woman who I call Abigail is really illustrative of this. And so when Abigail moved out of Safe Harbor, she moved into a subsidized apartment. And so that meant that uh, her rent should have been affordable. Her rent would be capped at 30% of her income. She happened to move into an apartment that had been uh, even recently renovated. And so she wasn't subject to living in an old or dilapidated structure. This really was in many respects kind of the gold standard, um, if you will, of, of thinking about housing interventions. And yet, as I spent more and more time with Abigail in her apartment, I began to hear as an ethnographer more and more about her boredom and also her loneliness within this particular setting. And so what we have to know too is a little bit more context. So the housing complex where Abigail moved from the shelter was located in a town that was very far from her, uh, from her family, from her networks of friends, um, and it was also, you know, an area that she wasn't particularly familiar with. And so, over time, um, and she was a, a younger mom; she was nineteen with um, with two children, and she was spending most of her days alone, um, caring for her two kids. And so, not surprisingly, over time, she began to feel more and more isolated within this context. And so, several months after moving into this apartment, she decided to to make a move to live with a friend of hers um, in uh, and her friend's family, with the promise of not only you know, I think some. Uh, the lessening of, of isolation and loneliness, but also some help tending to her kids, also the ability to to get out every now and again um, with, with transportation. And yet she sacrificed a great deal. She sacrificed at that point her subsidized housing. Um, she never again, during the time that I knew her, um, had access to a housing subsidy again. And so this sparked for Abigail a cycle then of continued housing precarity. And so this highlights the fact that Um, even in what might appear to be the best case scenario of someone receiving um, and having access to kind of the gold standard, it's also the case that we need to know more about the individual lives of people, what they value, what their day-to-day rhythms are like, to understand how best to support them in those contexts. And so we might imagine that if Abigail had received um, visits from um, uh, from supportive services, or had access um, during this time, she talked a lot about wanting to get a job. If she had access to better employment services, some of those things might have lessened that sense of isolation. But even so, it, it really highlights the ways in which, particularly for rural in rural communities. Geographic and social isolation are often intertwined, and that's something that we need to consider as we think about our solutions to the housing crisis within our region.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent
2: off. Yeah, and and you know, I think, um, I suspect you'll agree that it's fair to say that that we don't. When we think about people experiencing homelessness, we don't take seriously enough things like social isolation, about whether they um, are able to build networks of supportive communities that can make up for the ways in which they continue to be economically insecure, or for folks to help out with childcare, which is a recurring theme throughout the book, or again, particularly in rural locations with transportation. Right? These are, uh, you know, I, I, I I'm imagining people saying, "Well, that was silly for." Her to give up that rent-stabilized apartment, but easy for you to say, right? I mean, I think we we underestimate the 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 importance of mental health as well as economic security and shelter.
0: That, that's exactly right, and I think that it's something too that is really um, the 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 unique power of ethnographic methods to illuminate the nuances and the subtleties of these experiences is really important. At the heart of the book, I'm really striving to be able to shine a light on the complex lived realities of families who are experiencing homelessness. And so we can begin to move away from kind of broad assumptions that many might bring into the space of thinking about homelessness, really get to know uh, people and really begin to understand um, all of the different factors that may play into, as you said, a decision that perhaps from one perspective might seem um, you know like you know like a really, really bad decision on her part, but we can begin to to understand um, and have a great deal of empathy for why it is that um, being on her own was no longer a tenable uh, situation for her. So I
2: wonder if we might uh, uh, tip to arguably the, the other end of the spectrum and talk about um, some folks who were able to achieve uh, some degree of security material and otherwise. Um, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about uh, Barbara and Evan and, and how we might make sense of, of their relative success.
0: Sure. So Barbara and Evan stand out among the families with whom I've worked for being the only family that was able to move out of the shelter setting. Um, They moved into one apartment initially and then about a year later moved into a second apartment and they've stayed in that particular setting for more than a decade. That's a yeah. that's an exceptional story among the families with whom I work to have. that. So
2: Abigail was I, if I remember right 14, she moved 14 times in four
0: years. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. so
2: very different.
0: Very, very different. And so Barbara uh, and Evan um, were fortunate to move into uh, subsidized housing as they transitioned from the shelter. So that was the primary, I would say the primary structural determinant of their stability was having an affordable place to live. Um, They also had access to transportation over time. Evan worked continuously uh, during the course of the research, as did Barbara, although Barbara would leave jobs um, on occasion, but really worked continuously um, throughout her time. They were able to combine then their incomes from employment, which gave them um, a bit more economic security. And when Barbara might leave one job in search of better circumstances, she had the backstop of a, of a second income. Um, in their particular case as well, um, they were a bit uh, older than others within the study. And so their children were not um, small toddler age, but were um, approaching adolescence and so could be a bit more independent as well. And so Barbara was not as dependent upon childcare as some of the younger mothers in the study. And, and so I think that enabled her to uh, to work jobs that wouldn't have been tenable for, for others in the study. She was able... Much of the lower wage service sector types of positions that people held were subject to incredibly unpredictable scheduling. Um, For example, I would often not be able to schedule more than a few days out for families because they wouldn't know their work schedules. Um, And this was terribly difficult for families with young children. Barbara did not have that situation. And so I think that enabled her um, to take jobs that would be difficult. Difficult for others, and so there were several of those types of situational um, and and kind of her social situation that I think contributed to uh, her family's long-term stability over time. That being said, it was not easy for Barbara, and and it's still quite fragile. But at the same time. Um, they have remained in in the same apartment for for quite a long time now yeah. and
2: to to maybe draw a line under that to go back to the observation you made earlier about sort of this this you know the 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 hardy Yankee New England individualist ethic stuff um, the story you just told was not a story of uh, responsible or irresponsible behavior in many ways it was a story of getting lucky having their life circumstance. Organized in such a way that they were able to maintain a little bit of stability in their own lives. Is that
0: fair? I think that's very fair. Yeah. Um,
2: so you've you've hinted at this, but I wonder in our our last few minutes if you can share what what this experience and and the enormous amount of time that you've spent with these folks what are the lessons that, that you walk away from? You, you earlier suggested that there are also policy lessons here as a practical matter. What, what can and should we be doing that we are not doing?
0: Sure. Um, so I think first of all, um, one of the, one of the key findings in the work that's come through the work is really around, um, the the stigma and shame associated with homelessness and poverty uh, for families in northern New England, and this is something that I think is is amplified within the New England setting because of what you described as that that hearty Yankee sensibility, um, what I term in the book the New England bootstraps mentality, and that and that. Uh, expectation, really, that people ought to be able to, quote, make it on their own. And as we know, and we've talked about over the last half hour, the the deep yeah. uh, kinds of structural constraints under which people are living. And so I think- and more, that, Sorry, more to the point,
2: nobody makes it on their own, if we're being honest, right?
0: Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Nobody makes it on their own. Um, and so I think that you know, some of the some of the lessons that that I draw from this, or what I hope the work can do, is really help us to reimagine what's possible, and to draw attention to some of those deeply problematic um, uh, cultural expectations and 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 cultural narratives that we have like that, and and really to disrupt what I see as a pervasive cynicism and a tacit acceptance of the inevitability of homelessness. And so I think that as I think about at a broad level, kind of this is about culture and mindset. And I borrow in the book from uh, the work of mental health advocate Pat Deegan, who writes about a conspiracy of hope and I, I apply that to, to think about how we might spark a new ethos toward those experiencing homelessness. What if we expected and supported recovery from homelessness? Um, what if we understood this not as the failure of, quote, broken people, but a reflection of serious fault lines in our society and the diminishment of opportunity? Um, and so I think there's there's um, kind of at that broad level, but more practically speaking, there's a lot that we need to be doing as well. Um, and in the last chapter of the book, I I try to go into this in terms of thinking about making recommendations um, for how we can facilitate thoughtful development within our rural communities. And in rural New England, in Vermont, New Hampshire, this has been quite controversial over time. People uh, value rural and small town life. There's a great deal of attention to preserving that. But the situation or perhaps and the situation is dire with respect to our housing needs. Um, a recent report Uh, from Keys to the Valley, for example, identified that we need an additional 10,000 units of housing in the Upper Valley region alone by 2030 to meet demand. And so it's. This is not an area with a large population. This is not an area with a large population. So our towns and villages are a few thousand people, right? Each, and so I think that there's there's something that we really need to begin to understand this as the emergency that it is. Um, Certainly, rejecting. Some of the subtle forms of "not in my backyard" or NIMBYism that can come through, um, bringing different stakeholders together. This is—it's not to say this is easy work, but this is work that we we really, really need to to understand is is urgent. And so, I advocate in the book for increasing density in town and village centers. Um, I see this not only as increasing our housing capacity, but also mitigating some of the transportation challenges that people face in rural communities. Communities, and perhaps lessening some of the isolation by creating more opportunities for community integration. Um, I think in all of what we do around housing, we should be guided by the evidence. And so being guided by Housing First models, um, which have a long history of robust evidence behind them, while at the same time, when I see numbers like needing 10,000 units, I'm also, and then I look around and, and you know, we're, we're nowhere close to that. I also think that for, as a pragmatist, we need to um, be cognizant of what some creative interim solutions may look like as well. How can we convert motels over time to be permanent housing? How we might think about uh, models even of supportive co-housing where we disrupt that assumption of one family, one house and wrap services around um, uh, multiple families being able to pool resources together and address child care challenges for example and we've also seen within our local communities some uh, changes to zoning that for example allow the building of accessory dwelling units and I think these are all um, these these are all important um, aspects you these are this is a both and situation where we need to be working toward um, the development of, of enough, Uh, long-term and permanent housing while at the same time supporting these types of interim solutions to to increase capacity in the short term.
2: You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Elizabeth Carpenter-Song, who's been telling us about her new book, Families on the Edge, Experiences of Homelessness and Care in Rural New England, new from MIT Press. Elizabeth, thank you so very much for joining us today. It was a really great conversation. Much appreciated.
0: Thank you so much, Stephen.